This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines, on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. Now later on in the show, a leading Filipino intellectual on why Australia is hardly the only nation to cop China's bullying. What China did to Australia recently is something they did to us in 2012. China used economic statecraft, economic embargo against Philippine bananas. So here in the Philippines, there's a sort of a sympathy when, of course, China was punishing Australia by not, of course, allowing the entry of Australian beef, Australian coal, Australian lobster into the Chinese market. Stay with us for my chat with the Filipino political scientist Renato Cruz de Castro. But first, vaccine passports. Well, as Australia navigates a way to a post-COVID normality, should vaccines be mandated? What about passports? Should we see vaccination as literally necessary to living a good and full and healthy life? Should Australians have proof of vaccination to do everything, from working, travelling and attending events, to going to the pub and working out at the gym? After all, we're told businesses must provide a safe environment for their staff and customers, and as a large employer, so does the government. What do you think? Or can vaccine mandates really even stop COVID spread? Would coercion work? After all, those without symptoms, they can still pass on infection, right? Surely one can support the vaccine effort from the start and also believe in free choice. Won't government commands just stiffen the resistance of many anti-vaxxers? And won't mandates cost many people their jobs? Well, we have a terrific panel to discuss these issues. Greg Melhuish is a professor in the School of Humanities and Social Inquiry at the University of Wollongong. Hi there, Greg. Great to be here, Tom. Shahar Hamiri is Associate Professor at the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Shahar, welcome to Between the Lines. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Now, Greg, uh, you've written that we should exclude the unvaccinated from many of the functions of daily life. Tell us more. One of the things I think I'd like to get clear or discuss to begin with is that we're getting up to around about 90% of people being vaccinated. And it's often assumed that the people who oppose vaccination are this strange sort of libertarian principled group of people. But from my own observations, and nobody's done a study of this, it strikes me that the vaccinated fall into three groups. Uh, the first are those who think that the government got the science wrong and therefore vaccinations can in fact be dangerous. The rest of us who have been so foolish to be vaccinated may two years down the track find ourselves undergoing illness. The second group, I think, is strangely enough religious Christians uh, who tend to link vaccination often with end of days. And the third group, I think, is the people who don't like going to the doctors, don't want to have a needle, uh, and there are people who actually faint when they're being vaccinated, uh, usually grown men. I don't think women are like that. Uh, so if you're going to have vaccination passports, I think there's a couple of things. One is that 
it will only have an impact on that final group, the ones who, for whatever reason, are just not doing it. They're the ones who think, oh, I'll be okay. The other two groups, whatever we do, they will not be vaccinated. So what they're saying is that we stand outside the the group who were vaccinated. And, well, that's fine. They regard us with suspicion and whatever. Uh, They have their own principles. But if they don't want to be vaccinated, then they've also got to be able to wear the consequences. But in a number of cases that I've seen, they actually take great pride in the fact that they're not vaccinated. They think they're being morally superior by not getting vaccinated and that the great bulk of the population are the foolish ones. So I suppose if they want to stand outside, then I'm quite happy for them to stand outside. Yeah, you say there should be no free rides in the journey to vaccination. No free rides. I mean, we'll, we'll come to the question of the efficacy of vaccination in the moment for a moment. But, you know, if you're not willing to, in a sense, join almost the moral community of the vaccinated, then you wear the consequences. Okay, now let's bring in Shahahi. Now, you fully support vaccination and you don't believe people have the right to spread the disease to others if they feel like it. So the question here is, how should this be limited? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, I mean, I I am fully supportive of vaccination. Um, uh, When I got vaccinated all the way back in mid-June, when I got my second shot of Pfizer, I was one of only about 4.5% of Australians that were fully vaccinated at the time. So clearly, I'm very much in favour of vaccines. And I'd encourage everyone to get vaccinated, but the operative word for me is encourage rather than coerce. I think there has been an unfortunate impact of the uh, very loud yet quite small really anti-vaxxer minority on the debate over vaccination, not just in Australia but in many other countries. I think we need to be able to have nuanced positions in this discussion. So I'm very much in favour of vaccination, but this doesn't necessarily mean that I support vaccine passports. There are different issues. So the question that I would ask is what are vaccine passports actually meant to achieve? If the aim is to reduce the risk of infection and spread of COVID-19, I would argue that there are alternatives already out there that could augment a vaccine, um, a proof of vaccination, um, and then demonstrate some evidence for lower risk. So these, for instance, include things like um, rapid antigen testing or even proof of recovery from uh, previous illness, which we increasingly uh, ha- have evidence to show actually provide stronger and longer lasting in- immunity. Um, so neither of those options reduce the risk of infection uh, spreading to zero, but then neither do vaccines. Greg, that raises another question here is, can these passports or mandates, could they even stop COVID spread? Because the common argument for vaccine mandates is you have no right to infect me, but cases are partly driven by people who are unaware that they're even affected. So isn't there evidence that people who are vaccinated can both contract and contribute to the spread of COVID, especially given that this trend has been exacerbated by the Delta variant? Greg? I cannot comment on the medical side of this. The real problem here is that there are so many different views floating around. It appears to be the case, and we've seen that Israel has now said that it will have a third booster if people want to have a vaccine passport. The efficacy of the the vaccines is obviously not 100%. I think we're in unknown territory. All we can do is go along with 
what seems to be the best medical advice and then perhaps even hope for the best because it's it's not certain exactly what the consequences will be for a fully vaccinated population. So um, this whole this whole episode over the last 18 months or so uh, has just shown that governments are not perfect in the way they do things. We've got to just hope in a way that, that the things they do will work out. What, what's your sense of the international experience here, Shahar? I mean, if you think about Israel, Greg mentioned Israel, but about other states in the United States that have vaccine passports and mandates, what's the international experience like in your judgment? Well, that uh, gets us to, I think, what is the, the biggest issue here when it comes to uh, vaccine passports or vaccination more generally. The issue is that if people are willing or unwilling to get vaccinated, generally speaking, on a societal level, has a lot to do with their trust in public institutions. So let's compare Denmark and the United States. In Denmark, people generally are seen to have very high levels of trust in public institutions. Levels of vaccinations have been very, very high, and there are no vaccine passports in Denmark. The, the same situation actually applies in other Scandinavian countries. Compare that with the United States, where in some states in particular, certainly in some states in the American South, uh, levels of trust in government are very low, and the levels of vaccination are remarkably low given the availability of supply. Vaccine passports can't fix that. There is no way that um, you can use a vaccine passport to convince many people who are distrustful of the state for whatever reason to take the, uh, the vaccine. In fact, they probably are going to find that as further evidence uh, confirming their distrust of the state. So therefore, um, in those circumstances, the vaccine passport would not achieve what they're setting out to achieve. In fact, they may only exacerbate matters. There is also plenty of evidence out there. There's a lot of research on this, including by uh, excellent scholars in Australia, like uh, Katie Atwell or Judy, uh, Julie Leesk, uh, that have found that mandating vaccines doesn't actually support uh, higher levels of vaccination. There are other things that may work, like positive incentives in uh, public information campaigns and so on and so forth. But there's very little evidence that actually mandating vaccine improves rates of vaccination. And this is going to vaccination campaigns have been going on for a very long time. So that, okay, that brings the, me back, but, sorry, uh, Tom, to the underlying question of what it is that we're actually trying to achieve here um, with vaccine passports. If what we're trying to achieve is better rates uh, of vaccination or lower risk and or lower risk, well, there are other ways uh, to do that. This is Tom Switzer from RN's Between the Lines, and my guests are Greg Mel-Hewish from the University of Wollongong and Shahar Hamiri from the University of Queensland, and we're debating vaccine passports. The reality is that private companies here and elsewhere are, are already setting their own standards for workers and customers, you know, giving people a choice and an incentive to get vaccinated. Greg Mel-Hewish, what do you think should happen to those workers who exercise their free choice not to take the vax? I mean, should they lose their jobs? Well, um, actually, I know someone who's been working as a teacher who's decided not to get vaccinated and is um, giving up their position as a, as a teacher. But one would have thought that a place like education would be a place where you would generally want to get vaccinated. It, it's unclear to me the reasons why people would not choose to be vaccinated if they're particularly in a position such as health, education and so on, that really it would be in everyone's best interest for them to be vaccinated. And I think that's 
largely because, coming back to the, the issue of trust and the southern states of America and conspiracy theories, etc., is that these people often do have very, very strong views and they're very distrustful. And they see themselves, I think, even prior to COVID as sitting outside the system. And this gets back to the the issue you raised, Greg, in your article in the Australian newspaper recently, and we'll conclude with this, Shahar. Are the unvaxxed free riders? That's the question. I mean, they rely on everyone else being responsible while making no contribution of their own. That's the argument. How would you respond, Shahar? Well, the premise of this argument is one of herd immunity. Now, we know that many vaccines do produce herd immunity, but unfortunately, the vaccines that we currently have for COVID-19 do not produce herd immunity. Um, And there are countries out there like Portugal, Singapore and Iceland that have remarkably high levels of vaccination and are still getting big waves of infections, although the risk of hospitalisation and death has been reduced dramatically. So consequently, I would argue that unvaccinated people are primarily a threat to themselves. Now, the counter argument to that would be that these people would then pose a threat to the uh, entire health system, that they're putting an unacceptable burden on the health system. But I think that uh, that argument is unacceptable in itself. Now, health systems are already struggling in many places. Just today, we heard, for example, that there is a spat between uh, our own premier here in Queensland and the prime minister about the funding of hospitals, because our hospitals here in Queensland are already under strain and we don't even have COVID. So the issue here is long-term neglect by governments, right? So if we accept the logic that we need to protect the health system instead of the health system protecting us, this in my view lets governments off the hook. And also we don't require passports for heavy drinkers, heavy smokers, or people who are overweight, even though they also impose a disproportionate uh, proportionate strain on the health system. And there is an additional argument that someone might put to me, which would be something along the lines of, well, the unvaccinated people could incubate new and more dangerous strains, variants of the COVID-19, of of the coronavirus. Now, this argument also, I don't think, has a lot of leg to stand on because it's far more likely statistically that these new variants would emerge in developing countries where there are very large populations of unvaccinated people. So I don't think that the uh, argument that unvaxxed are free riders actually um, stacks up to the available evidence that we have. Shahar, Greg, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much, Tom. Greg Mel-Hewish is a professor in the School of Humanities and Social Inquiry at the University of Wollongong, and Shahar Hamiri is Associate Professor at the School of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Queensland. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, we all too often hear what leading Australians and Americans think of the recent AUKUS security arrangements, but what do prominent thinkers in our region think? After all, Southeast Asia's strategic significance, it's growing, and nowhere is this more evident than in the Philippines. Now, like other states, Manila attempts to reconcile important trade relations with China on the one hand with important security ties with the US on the other. So what's the view from the Philippines? Renato Cruz de Castro is a distinguished professor at the International Studies Department in De La Salle University in Manila. Renato has previously studied and worked in Japan, Washington and Hawaii. Renato, welcome to ABC Radio. Hello, mate. How are you doing? 
<laughs> Very good indeed. Now, five years ago, the Hague International Tribunal ruled against Beijing, and yet China's maritime provocations in Philippine-claimed waters, they've intensified. Tell us more. Well, China basically ignored the ruling. So what China's basically done is, of course, continue its assertiveness and expansion in the South China Sea. So this is how basically great powers who have, of course, expansionist ambitions would behave. They would ignore international law because the goal is primarily, of course, maritime expansion, not only in the South China Sea, but in the first island chain. That's, of course, linking the waters of the South China Sea with the East China Sea, constituting what you call the first island chain. Well, a few months ago, Manila announced it would officially restore the Visiting Forces Agreement. Now, this makes it easier for American troops to operate on the archipelago. What's the significance of this decision? Well, it basically put the alliance back on track. Because when President Rodrigo Duterte announced its termination in February 2020, it put the alliance in a limbo. So both sides could not conduct uh, military exercise. Of course, it's uh, it was during the pandemic, but at the same time, there's also uncertainty on the part of the United States whether it would send its forces in the Philippines, uh, given the fact that, of course, the legal guarantee provided by the Visiting Forces Agreement was, of course, bound to expire in August 2020. In a way, Washington was upset by the sudden decision of President Duterte to simply announced the abrogation of the Visiting Force Agreement. So what basically happened when he decided to say that I am, of course, terminating the abrogation process, he simply put the alliance back on track. But he's lost about one year of planning, one year of continuous military exercises, one year, of course, of consultation regarding how this alliance would have to be construed in the light, of course, of the changes happening in the Indo-Pacific region. How's Beijing responded to the closer Filipino security ties with Washington? Well, recently, our foreign secretary, Secretary Teodoro Luxin, mm-hmm. filed three diplomatic protests against China. Of course, this is an indication that China, again, is trying to exert pressure on the Philippines. Now, of course, ever since President Duterte became the president of the Philippines, Chinese ambassadors had acted like proconsuls. They could go straight to the presidential palace without informing the foreign secretary. So uh, we're starting to feel Chinese pressure. In July, we decided to put the alliance on track by uh, terminating the abrogation process. And more importantly, more significantly, the Philippines made the strongest statement supporting the formation of Axis. Yes, this is uh, China's wolf warrior diplomacy in action. It's when uh, Beijing punishes countries or make it very clear that they're unhappy with countries that pursue policies not to the Chinese Communist Party's liking. We all too often say in Australia that the Chinese government's doing this to us, but they're, they're maintaining good relations with other countries in the region. That's not necessarily the case. No, no, no. Uh, what China did to Australia recently is something they did to us in 2012 during the administration of the late President Benigno Aquino, who challenged China in a, you know, a tense three-month standoff in Scarborough Shoal. China used economic statecraft, economic embargo against Philippine bananas. 
So here in the Philippines, there's a sort of a sympathy, very silent sympathy, of course, until now, punishing Australia by not, of course, allowing the entry of Australian beef, Australian coal, Australian lobster into the Chinese market. So Australia is not the only country in the region suffering a bully boy tactics from Beijing. No, no, definitely not. The Philippines in 2012, and now recently, of course, Taiwan. Intrusion of Chinese fighter planes and bombers into the uh, Taiwanese air identification zone. So it's also pushing Taiwan into the corner. Japan, of course, in 2010, banning the export of Chinese rare air to Japan over an incident in the Senkaku. So we have all been victimized by Chinese strong-arm tactics, focusing, of course, on economic statecraft. Renato Cruz de Castro is a distinguished professor at the International Studies Department at De La Salle University in Manila. His latest publication is called The Philippines Caught Between Appeasing and Constraining China, How Australia Can Help Tip the Balance. Now, Renato, uh, tell us about the tensions inside the Philippine government. These are between those who favour what you call an appeasement policy towards China in the South China Sea and those who are pushing for a policy of constrainment via closer security ties in Washington. Tell us about these tensions. Well, this tension began in 2016 when President Duterte adopted an appeasement policy. I call it appeasement because he extended concession to China. Number one, of course, Philippines and Australia both have a common ally, and that's the United States. So the first thing that President Duterte did was to distance the Philippines away from the United States. Second, of course, he ignored the ruling, the Hague ruling, that came out a month after, of course, he assumed the presidency. And the third concession, of course, that he extended to China was he agreed to China's means of managing, resolving this dispute, which, of course, involved, number one, Dealing with China on a bilateral basis every year, we have to deal with the Chinese. We have to engage in this debate among, you know, among the deaf, you know, uh, Chinese who assert their position. Then, of course, we would mention the Hague ruling, uh, not publicly, but only through this diplomatic channel. Uh, then, of course, talking about the possibility of joint development. And the third, of course, is the fact that uh, we would have to allow Chinese expansion without filing any diplomatic protest. So that has been the case from 2016 to 2018. By 2018, there was, of course, a realization, especially in the military, that this appeasement policy is uh, leading us to nowhere. China, whether you're a friend or a foe of China, China would assert, would push with the agenda of maritime expansion. So, of course, the uh, descending voice started from the military because of the fact that the military has been put in a very vulnerable position, especially to the military units deployed in islands that we occupied in the South China Sea, then, of course, followed by our diplomats. When Secretary Teodoro Luxin became the foreign secretary in 2018, I'm sorry. So you have two voices there, one coming from the Secretary of National Defense, Delphine Lorenzana, then, of course, Secretary Teodoro Luxin started to, you know, uh, basically express their dissenting opinion in a louder manner. Their voices started to be heard, mm. and this put the Philippine government in a standoff. 
those who still wanted to continue the appeasement policy led by no less than our president, then being challenged in a very subtle manner, but nevertheless effective by the secretaries of the national defense and, of course, the secretary of foreign affairs. This is awfully complicated because Duterte is a pretty popular uh, president of the Philippines. The Filipino people, according to all the available public appalling evidence, loves and supports the United States, especially its role in the region. So given that Duterte has been acquiescing in Beijing's uh, maritime provocations, how do you account for Duterte's popularity with the Filipino people? Well, he's popular when it comes to domestic issues especially when it comes to uh, law and order, you know, dealing with drug lords, creating this image that, you know, yes, the solution to this drug problem, this uh, issue regarding crimes, that's, of course, drastic measure, allowing the police to conduct extrajudicial killings, which created an impression that you have a very decisive leader. But on the other hand, of course, he's not very popular when it comes to foreign policy. If you check the polls conducted by two survey institutions, uh, Pulse Asia and the Social Weather Station, the public opinion is generally inclined to the view that, number one, China cannot be trusted. Number two, there's a need for the government to assert the Hague ruling. And number three, the Philippine government should strengthen the armed forces of the Philippines in the face of Chinese growing presence in the West Philippine Sea or in the South China Sea. Duterte, of course, he's been president since 2016. Uh, He's announced just recently he's retiring from politics. That is, he won't seek to circumvent the Constitution's six-year presidential term limit by running for vice president in next year's election. So presumably, Duterte's departure, won't that shift the balance of power in the Philippines further towards constraining China? Renato? Yeah, it depends on who will be elected. Uh, there's a possibility, and I believe this possibility, that his daughter, uh, Sarah Duterte, the current mayor of Davao, will be running for the presidency, and the vice president might be the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos. Hmm. So, you know, in a way, he will have, uh, just in case Sarah Duterte gets elected, so somebody in Malacanang will be there to protect uh, President Duterte, of course. Okay, now final question here is how can Australia help tip the balance? Now, bear in mind the Filipino foreign minister strongly supported the AUKUS agreement recently announced Washington, London and Canberra. In your judgment, does the recent uh, AUKUS arrangement, this is the security arrangement, the US, UK, Australian arrangement, to what extent does that help tip the balance in the Philippine government? Well, uh, now, of course, it's an indication that the voice of constraint is becoming more dominant in the government. And it's primarily because President Duterte is simply focused on the election, this coming election. Plus, of course, he's being attacked in the Philippine Senate. You have an investigation going on regarding the anomalous transaction of uh, PPEs, for a personal protective, protective equipment for health workers. So uh, he's on the defensive on the domestic side. So he's giving more leeway to his foreign secretary and defense secretary to deal with issues like first dealing with China, of course, also managing our alliance with the United States and, of course, our security partnership with Australia. You have to understand why did the Philippines came out strongly regarding AUKUS. Number one, of course, 
we have a security alliance with the United States. And of course, we also have a security partnership with Australia. Well, all the evidence indicates that the Philippines will become more sceptical of China. Renato, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much, mate. <laughs> Renato Cruz de Castro is a distinguished professor at the International Studies Department at De La Salle University in Manila. Well, that's it for the week. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including last month's panel on the attitudes of Generation Z towards COVID. These are young Australians in their early 20s. If you'd like to hear Kate Jackson and Anjali Nadaranjane, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you get your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer and thanks for listening. <laughs>